Good evening, everyone. Let me remind you that you will enjoy this program most if you're sitting closer to the front. And let me remind you also that you might want to sit on an aisle if you anticipate answer, or wanting to ask a question. And now I can give my formal good evening and welcome. I'm Mary Wood for the San Francisco Ballet Center for Dance Education. And I'm honored to be here with you this evening in the War Memorial Opera House in San Francisco. And to welcome you to the Points of View program this evening, Wednesday, April 9th, 2014. The Center for Dance Education is directed by Charles Chip McNeil. Adult education is coordinated by <clears throat> uh, Cecilia Beam. The Center for Dance Education produces many, many different programs, both for adults and for children. As you probably know, the children have community matinees here in the Opera House, and of course, our renowned dance in schools and communities. And then adult programming includes these points of view lectures, the <clears throat> meet the artist interviews that occur before selected performances, the talks on ballet. I hope many of you were able to participate in those this last weekend. And the Ballet 101 series, which sells out in no time. So you need to be watching your calendar for that next January. As I think most of you know, <clears throat> these programs are recorded for podcast at a future date on the ballet's website. So you'll want to go to sfballet.org where you can go across the top and look at interact and then down to listen and then pick one of the points of view or meet the artist interviews to review one that you enjoyed or catch one that you might have missed. So welcome not only to those of you who are here, but to those who may be listening via the internet. I especially want to welcome members of the Friends of San Francisco Ballet, the Christensen Society, and the Chairman's Council. Of course, your generous contributions have helped make the 2014 repertory season a great success. We are all so grateful. Thank you so much. And I hope that you will enjoy this program this evening as well. <clears throat> Just to review quickly for those of you who might be new to our program here in the Opera House, um, due to our configuration, we need to ask those of you who would like to ask questions, and of course we value that part of the program, answering your questions, to come to the standing mic that's right at the foot of the aisle. And that way everyone will be able to hear your question and we'll best be able to answer it. And then just a quick reminder, when you exit, you'll need to go out the side this way, the way you came in. Those of you who are not ticketed can be on your way. Those of you who are ticketed will go back down through a checkpoint and re-enter the auditorium. This evening, we're treated to a presentation from our 2014 visiting scholar, whose focus will be Mark Morris's Maelstrom. Before we move to that main event, I just want to mention that also on the program is a reprise of Yuri Posakov's Rite of Spring to the iconic Stravinsky score, which will be the very exciting conclusion to the program. And then in the center of the program will be Helgi Thomason's world premiere ballet, Caprice. 
So knowing that you will enjoy the entire evening, it's now time to get to our feature for this evening. San Francisco Ballet visiting scholar, Dr. Stephanie Jordan, who will present Meeting Beethoven, Mark Morris, and Maelstrom. Stephanie Jordan is a research professor in dance at the University of Roehampton in London. She's had a professional career as a dancer, a musician, and a dance critic. She's considered the foremost researcher and thinker in the interrelationship of music and dance. The New York Times chief dance critic has called her work Moving Music, a milestone in dance studies, and a primer of great intelligence and acuity, and a Bible and launching pad for other academics. You are in for a treat. Dr. Jordan has written numerous scholarly articles and essays, edited five books, as well as written three books as sole author, <clears throat> Striding Out, Aspects of Contemporary and New Dance in Britain, Moving Music, we mentioned earlier, Dialogues with Music in 20th Century Ballet, and Stravinsky Dances, Revisions Across a Century. Her fourth book on the American choreographer Mark Morris is to, public, to be published in the fall of 2014. For her book, Moving Music, Dr. Jordan was awarded the 2001 Special Citation of the Dance Perspectives Foundation in New York, and in 2010, she received the Outstanding Scholarly Research in Dance Award from the U.S. Congress on Research in Dance, and both of these are major international dance awards. The George Balanchine Foundation of New York commissioned Dr. Jordan to work with New York City ballet dancers to create an analytical video, Music Dances, Balanchine Choreographs Stravinsky. Some of us were treated to excerpts of that during a lecture given by Dr. Jordan earlier this week. In 2004, Dr. Jordan co-researched and presented a second video, Ashton Stravinsky, a study of four ballets in collaboration with the Royal Ballet. <clears throat> She's been a speaker and consultant for various television and radio programs, including the BBC TV documentary on the Rite of Spring and broadcasts of the Royal Ballet in Firebird and Les Nos. In 2012, for BBC Radio, she presented a documentary celebrating the centenary of the Rite of Spring as a, as a dance. <clears throat> Pardon me. Dr. Jordan holds bachelor's degree in music from the University of Birmingham, a master of, music, of arts in music from UCLA, and a doctor of philosophy and music from the University of London, Goldsmith. It's an impressive resume, and I know you're going to enjoy Dr. Jordan's lecture very, very much. So please give a very, very warm welcome to Dr. Stephanie Jordan. Good evening. It's a pleasure to be addressing you this evening. I'm going to start with a question from Clement Crisp of the Financial Times, who's by far the most witty of dance critics in the UK, and also the most acidic. And he's asking this question, who but a madman, or Mark Morris, would make a ballet to Beethoven's ghost trio? 
But he adds, Morris, against all odds, was utterly persuasive. He's writing about Maelstrom, the 1994 ballet set to Beethoven's trio for violin, cello, and piano, composed in 1809. And this was Morris's first work for San Francisco Ballet. So it's 20 years after it was made that we're looking at it today. Crisp continues, unlike most choreographers who take on great scores and bring to them preconceived ideas worthy of an axe murderer, Morris allows himself to be led by Beethoven, then finds ways of showing us what he hears the composer saying. And Beethoven, his music is not known as obvious music for dance, although he actually wrote dance music twice. In 1790, music for a knight's ballet, eight dances and songs celebrating German enthusiasm for drinking, hunting, war, and sometimes dancing and The Creatures of Prometheus for the acclaimed Italian choreographer Salvatore Vigano in 1801. Many critics, including Alastair Macaulay of the New York Times, readily point out that Balanchine considered Beethoven's music unchoreographable. And of course, Mr. B is God. Here is Macaulay on the Beethoven cello sonata used for Morris's visitation of 2009, it's not dance friendly, he suggests. It's questionable whether any choreographer has made an enduringly successful work to Beethoven. But I believe that rules are there to be broken and Mark Morris has always been ready for challenges. He set Beethoven six times indeed, concert pieces, very early in his career, in the middle period of his career, and increasingly recently. And it's interesting that he's tending to go from early to late Beethoven at the same time. It's the chamber music that he nearly always uses as befits the size of his own modern dance company, the, modern, the Mark Morris Dance Group. But this is also often the case for his ballets good for touring, but it also suits his idea of art as voices of individuals within a community. Unlike, for instance, Alexei Ratmansky, for instance, who rather more often wants to use the big ballet orchestra to make big statements about mankind. The trio of Maelstrom is nicknamed the ghost because of the strange quality of its central slow movement its vibratory, long, long tremolos and chromaticism in the piano part. Carl Cheney, so well known um, as a Beethoven pupil, but famous for his own pedagogical piano studies, was immediately reminded of Hamlet's father's ghost. But the musical sketches indicate relationship to a planned Macbeth opera, the witches scene that uh, Beethoven was planning. So there was intermingling of sketch material for these two very separate projects. The performance description for this slow movement is largo assai ed espressivo, very slow and expressive. And we're haunted by a theme, a repeating motif that moves across long, strange stretches of tremolo in the piano. Dum, ba -da -da -dum, bum, bum. Please excuse my bad singing. You'll hear that many times. 
As musicologist Marion Scott put it, now sotto voce, now the music rises to sudden flares of fortissimo, while another scholar, Mark Kaplan, referred to the fine use of the murky bottom sonorities of the cello. As for the title, Maelstrom, it literally means whirlpool, and turbulence can certainly be experienced emotionally in this dark second movement, literally dark, the lighting, and in the general restlessness of the steps and the human traffic throughout the ballet. In the central Largo movement, consider the tense, mysterious hovering of a single woman over one and later six men lying on the floor, symbolic perhaps of death. Or the recurring picture is the last one, last position that you see at the end of the Largo, a woman hanging backwards from a man's shoulder in a back bend and in a line so that you can see her, um, her head upside down from the audience point of view. And look out from, for the shift from adagio to allegro dancing in this movement, encouraged perhaps by the piano accompanying line and the the smaller and smaller note values on the piano, growing tension, and the ominous bare opening, just two notes to very quiet string, unison strings, the violin and cello in unison, and the simple movement that goes with that, which I will just show you. Very quiet indeed, you can hardly hear it. Very mysterious and very simple, very bare. As a whole, the piece is about community, but then in 1994, it was also a new exploration for Morris of couple work. Seven couples, 14 dancers altogether. And now I'm going to return to a theme that I've been using this week quite a lot about looking at big forms, big scores, scores with multiple movements, there are three here, fast, slow, and fast, using classical models and sonata form, the main model. Sonata form consists of three main sections, exposition, exposition of material, usually two main theme areas, that exposition is often repeated, development, the second section, development of material, and recapitulation, which is often um, a, a, a mirroring, if you like, or return of the exposition. So you have those three sections and a sense of symmetry. And to cut a long story short, also we're moving tonally from a home key away from, from, um, from, from, from resolution, away into new dangerous areas, other tonalities, and back to the calm home base by the end of the movement. When using sonata form, Mark Morris, a, a, a tremendous musician in his own right, virtually without exception respects the large outlines of a musical score by associating dance material with major blocks of music material and its repetitions, its recapitulations. 
I'm going to just diverge slightly from Maelstrom and show you, because I'm able to show you a little more time of material, um, choreography to V using the Schumann Piano Quintet, because it explains sonata form very, very beautifully and quickly. The first movement. You'll see an opening with several dancers wearing blue, and they're moving their arms out, in, in, out, in. I'll show you this. of the exposition and we have other material afterwards. The second exposition shows people wearing a very light green and they do this. They start with the arms out, in, out, in. Then they go in, out, in. Then there's a development. Then there's a recapitulation, and what happens in the recapitulation? Mark Morris puts the two groups on top of each other. So you see them working together, twice as many people on stage. You'll also see a changed spatial organization as the piece progresses. For the greens, everything that was upstage is placed downstage. Everything that was stage left is stage right. Put them all together, it all works out, nobody pushes into anyone else, and you'll also see a sense of embrace resulting from the arm movements that they are then doing together. Okay. First theme repeated. Notice this is upstage. Continuing first theme material. of your screen. And now, exposition two, the greens. front, spatially. And the V shapes the other way around as well. Now what was upstage is now down.
beginning of the second theme material and it's now on the other side of the stage. recapitulation the two groups put together and you'll see some overlap between the dances of the two groups so an embrace is formed by that opening arm movement that you saw it's like recapitulation resolution the community celebrating coming together Okay, so that, that doesn't show you the whole of an exposition, the whole of a recapitulation, but it does give you the idea of the layout of this big form. Morris nearly always experiments more radically than in V with the manner of dance repetition. He changes casting, for instance. Um, he adds layers of counterpoint. So you may not think that you're necessarily seeing the dance, the same dance steps again. Things have changed quite radically. But he does keep that link with the actual music material very frequently. Here in Maelstrom, you first see four dancers at work. And then when the exposition repeats, you see two lines of dancers, um, the women in one line, the men in another, like a, forming a kind of runway between them. Two further dancers are doing solo activity, but it's basically the same dance material. Then, in the recapitulation, we do have 14 dancers in this piece, and they gradually come in as couples. So the arrangement of the dancers and the assembling into duets duos um, has changed. And this is how the piece develops over time, even though fundamentally they're still doing the same steps to the same music. I'm going to take you through some of that material to look for. First of all, there's a lot of material that is two-dimensional to begin with. I'll show you those ideas. The first movement. introducing you to some of the basic steps that you'll see again and again. One dancer shows it, another dancer um, responds in agreement. Often dancers are not in unison, but they're doing things one after another. And there's a really lovely rhythm bit in the second theme, which I'm going to introduce you to. The music is in 3-4 time, and we see a series of triplet steps. But no sooner have we seen them going with the music, 
than we see them crossing, so two against three, sometimes called hemiola, or very fast triplets against the slow triplet of the music. I hope you can hear me, but you must believe that I'm actually counting threes, even if you can't hear that very clearly, and watch my feet. I'm not going to be showing you the arms to this section. Watch that, that's, that's fun. And it's fun to learn as well. Okay. Here we go with the exposition one, followed by exposition two. gestures on the accents and little jumps that seem to go with the musical melody. Here's the triplets. marking four notes in the music. Exposition repeats. And now they dance to music that was originally not danced to. And now we're back with the same movement material again. The two lines forming a runway. And the two soloists who enter.
triplets again. And we have to cut this at this point. Okay. Mark Morris is a rhythmic magician, so that's why, one reason why I showed you the, um, the little triplet passage there. Um, notice how there's so much going on. There's so much to entice your imagination and your eyes and ears, uh, racing your eye across the dancers and the stage to catch all the information. Interestingly enough, when you watch the second and third movements of Maelstrom, you'll see similar um, practices in relation to the use of musical repetition. And in the last movement, which is a fast movement, you'll see that the two expositions in the choreography are again put on top of each other. So three dancers in an exposition and another three doing the repeat with different material, suddenly the stage picture is double the size. Let's now consider the use of musical principles in the detail of the work, the motifs. Unlike in this musical score as a whole, Morris accumulates ideas across individual mu musical movements, so you see many old friends again and again. And the end of the choreography is like a summary of much that went before. Back in the 1980s, when he was starting out as a choreographer, Morris had read about Haydn's economy and logic of thematic motivic development in a book by the celebrated musicologist Charles Rosen, The Classical Style, and he enthusiastically took note of this musical aesthetic principle for his own choreography. So there's a sense of organic work an effect of control, no red herrings, no loose ends. Just as an example, taking an idea from the second ghost movement, I'll talk you through how that develops and how it also comes back in the last movement. The and a high leg extension, and it becomes a gargouillard in a lift, which is like um, a decorated pas de char. And in a lift, the dancers have a little more time to show you the detail of the step. And you'll see the front leg usually making that little circle um, more clearly than the back leg. So um, now I'm going to show you just a couple of passages from the third movement where you see motifs, material that you've already seen that I've shown you, that I've talked about, and you can see them in a new context, including the gargouillard lift. one with the gargouillard.
On the other hand, watch out for a crazy stepping on point, an échappé passage, very near the end of the whole piece, in the last half minute of the work. Pizzicato on the strings, women's music. This is the, 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 the quite con conventional gendered instrumentation. Pizzicato was used for point work in the 19th century very frequently. And you think, I've never seen that before. It's, it's bizarre, but it's also great fun. Um, in fact, it does relate to something earlier, but it's suddenly emphasized out of all proportion. And I think that Mark is having a, a joke. The ballet ends with the arm gesture that is done at the beginning of the ballet very, very quickly. And I think with the men falling to the floor, it almost has the effect of a strange kind of decapitation by the women that may not be entirely serious at the end of this particular final movement. So form and emotion in this piece. That middle movement has hints of death, of darkness, of supernatural. And how much is that reconciled with the, with, the, um, with the ideas of the outer movements, particularly the last? I don't think it is. I feel there's a tug between two principles here. And Mark Morris, like Balanchine, was interested in a hint of narrative, a hint of story, but without clarifying it and answering the questions that may arise. Such opposition between principles seems especially strong and expressive in Maelstrom, in both the music and the dance. And I actually believe that this is one of um, Mark's finest ballets, finest pieces. Certainly, I do understand why Clement Chris was so enthusiastic. Morris, he said, has shown us what he hears the composer saying, and we, in turn, listen more acutely. Thank you. Thank you, and if you have any questions, please come to the front and to the microphone. Thank you. I can see everyone rushing to get there. Any questions? Well, I shall be around during the performance if people want to come up and ask anything that results from my my talk, but we probably should be thinking about closing. Yeah? Oh, there's a question. Great. What year did you say this was choreographed? 1994. Ah. Because um, Mark Morris had uh, been a folk dancer, yes. and the triplets look a lot like character dancing and folk dancing. Thank you. That's a very, very nice observation. He had been a folk dancer. That was unusually for a choreographer. Um, that was his main training for a long time before, alongside, but, but just as important as his ballet and his modern dance training. Um, the triplets are there, but they are, in, they are also um, material that is studied um, as part of classical ballet training and balancés, for instance, and triplets in contemporary dance in both Cunningham technique and Graham technique. It's one of those steps which changes your feet very fortunately, very comfortably, and is, is standard and has that quality of folk about it. Anything else? I understand that if you're in the middle of a row, it's not that easy to get out to the front. A gargouillard. 
It's, um, it's a part of Shah. choreographed or even practiced in class these days. Okay. There's somebody. I can hear you, yeah. Uh, he, he doesn't use either. He doesn't use software and he doesn't notate. He has, he has diagrams sometimes for what he calls like traffic, getting people around the stage um, in a particular part or length of time in the music. Um, Lab and notation is a very lengthy business. I think it's a very, very valuable and accurate and detailed system for recording dance, but very, very few choreographers, and I don't know of anyone at the moment who uses it, but usually it's somebody sitting in rehearsal when a work is being made, or after work is being revived carefully, is looking at videos and looking at a revival and doing the job then. Um, interestingly, recently he has had two, possibly three pieces notated in Lava Notation. Um, one was all fours to the Bartok string, fourth string quartet. Um, and that was done after he created it, sometime after cre he created it. The same uh, notator who was very, very good um, and very accurate, uh, he, he invited to come in and um, work on his Rite of Spring that he created last year and was shown in Berkeley. Um, he, he's intrigued, but not completely, um, what's the word, persuaded. But at the same time, he's obviously interested in, in, in what it can do and the, and, and the fact that it can actually be used as a very important preserving tool for his work. There's another question. effect of, of the Berkeley residences, um, I wouldn't be able to say, I mean, he may be able to answer that better than myself. Um, I would say that he has found the Berkeley residences very, very useful um, as opportunities, for instance, to, when he's doing a work using Baroque music, to be able to work with original or early instruments. Nicholas McGeegan's um, Philharmonia Baroque, for instance, which is not an opportunity he has everywhere by a long shot. So it's an opportunity to explore that kind of sound. Um, but you know, when you have piece, the opportunity to show pieces frequently and regularly, you get to know more about what you've made and the dancers have, have a better opportunity to get into the works and to develop their own interpretations. So I would say that, that um, the home of Berkeley has been crucial to him and I, and I know he loves coming here. Yeah. Um, I think Mark is certainly, I don't know anyone who um, operates with the music world in quite the way he does. I'm not going to say he's the only one. Um, 
he, there are other very, very musical choreographers, some who, um, who, who have even tried to compose some music for their own dances. But um, he's very, un very unusual indeed in coaching the musicians into his own musical interpretation when they play for him. Not in any dictatorial way. They would say, no, he allows us some freedom. But at the same time, he does have a point of view. And we can actually learn from that point of view sometimes. It might even change our own ideas about how to play that piece of music, having worked with him. Um, he also conducts occasionally because that's one way of getting to know a work that's particularly familiar to him, that he might find out something different about it and find out something different about the music um, to refresh himself. I don't know. Balanchine did conduct Symphony in C once, but I think there was only one occasion that I know about when that happened. Um, I don't know about other choreograph choreographers. Certainly his, his manner of using music is, is, is probably unique. These are all very good questions. I'm sure there are more. Yeah. I have to be honest, I, I personally didn't know the music well at all. I might have heard it once before, before knowing it as a piece that Mark choreographed. So I'd probably answer that question by, by being more general about the experience of knowing a piece of music and then seeing choreography to it, any piece of music. Um, I would say that it is bound to... It's, about, it's very, very likely to to bring out accents in the music, maybe musical lines in a, in a contrapuntal texture um, in a different way from how you may have heard it before. For instance, I do know that um, sometimes Mark will choose to bring out a particular line, the cello line, for instance, in a dance line. And once, it, once that is danced, like the rhythm pattern may be, may, may be indicated or an accent may be picked out that is in that lower part, you hear it more, even though the musician may not play it more loudly or make you hear it more that way. Um, the visualization of something um, changes your, your, your impression of, of, of a piece of music. That has often happened to me when I have known a piece of music and then I've seen choreography by Balanchine or Morris um, that, has, that has, has brought out something internal to the music, which a musical interpreter may not necessarily do. And then, of course, um, as soon as that happens, it's going to change your, your impression of the structure of a piece of music. Um, it may highlight a particular point in the stage of a musical narrative that was never highlighted before. Um, and, and I think that's the best way I can answer that question. It's, it's a good one, but it's, it's often not understood just how much choreography can make you hear differently. Yeah. Yeah, 
I've seen the first half of it, but I have a really good excuse. I had to prepare for a presentation, so I had to disappear. And tonight I'm delighted I'm going to be able to see the whole thing. I won't be able to, I, I can't do that. And for a start, um, Mark Morris's Rite of Spring uses the bad plus jazz version, so it's not even the original Stravinsky. However, what I will say, because that raises an interesting point, the Millicent Hodson reconstruction of the original 1913 Nijinsky shows in August of Spring, the, the bit that everyone thinks of when, when, when we talk about Rite of Spring, um, when you have the dum pum 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 pa da dee da dee with all those irregular accents, you never know which, what's going to happen next. Um, it's interesting to me that Hodson showed the small b ta 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 in the feet of the men, and the accents were all indicated with pairs of gestures. And Posikov also shows that small beat. Um, the dancers are showing it, and they are kicking their legs to every accent. So he's the principle, the, the principle of visualizing the texture of the music is there in both versions. However, Pina Bausch's Rite of Spring, which I think is wonderful, chooses to use the, the longer beat. It's the crotchet beat, the quarter note beat. So instead of having moves like da, 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 they are yum, palm, 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 that much bigger and longer. Um, and because the dancers can get their weight into the ground, it's that the particular movements that, that show the beat are more powerful. That sort of answers your question in a, in a way you never expected, I believe. <laughs> okay. I think you've asked wonderful questions. Thank you very much. That's very, very stimulating for me. And I've enjoyed talking to you. Thanks. Thank you.